0: If you've been following along over the past six weeks, then you know that we have covered a lot of content during this Lenten series where we focus on the festivals of Israel. And so before talking about the final one, the the Feast of Tabernacles, which is our topic for today, I thought it might be wise to review the feasts that we've covered so if you can remember back a month and a half ago, it all started, the first, cease of the, uh, the first feast of the cycle began with Passover. Do you remember that? Six weeks ago, we celebrated Passover together on the Sunday morning. And we made, when we did that, we made the obvious connection between the sacrifice of the Passover lamb on Passover and the death of of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was an easy one to do because Jesus himself made that connection for us and explained to us that the Passovers, where the Lamb was sacrificed, were actually, ultimately, all about him and pointing forward to him. And that, that was a clue for us that, in fact, all of these feasts, in one way or another, were really pointing forward to the life and to the ministry of Jesus the Son of God, our Savior. And so we went on to the next feast the next week, and it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? And you'll remember we talked about purging our homes from yeast during the Feast of Unleavened Bread because the yeast represented sin. And you might even remember that during the children's message that day, I traveled around with some different kids throughout the sanctuary. Some yeast had been placed throughout, and we purged it from the sanctuary, we made the connection that morning that as Joseph of Arimathea was laying Jesus' body in the grave, as he was doing that that night, the calendar for the Jewish people was just turning over to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the burial of Jesus coincided with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and it represented the removing of our sin from us just as the yeast had been removed from our homes. And then the next week we came to the feast of first fruits. First fruits is when the very beginning of the harvest is just starting to come in and you throw a party and have a worship celebration and you thank God for the beginning of the harvest and you look forward to the fullness of the harvest that's to come. All right? The feast of first fruits is like a promise. A little bit of the harvest just came in, that's a promise that the rest is coming, and we made the observation that actually Jesus' resurrection happened on the day of the Feast of First Fruits. And his resurrection represented a promise, the beginning of a harvest, a promise from God about the gift of eternal life that we have because Jesus is the firstfruits, the first one to rise from the dead, and that's a promise that all of us in Christ will be raised from the dead. And then came the feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is the festival of the harvest. We talked about how the first Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection, the first Pentecost was the time when God poured out His Spirit upon His people. Do you remember the scene? God empowered His disciples to proclaim the gospel of the good news of Jesus and He gave them the the, the power to speak that message in diverse languages that they didn't even know and hadn't been taught, but it came out of their mouths in languages that could be understood by the crowd. The crowd had gathered to celebrate from all over and they, they came from different areas and they spoke different languages, but by the power of the Spirit, the disciples preached and the people heard it in their own language. And that we noted that that was the beginning, just as Pentecost is a feast of the harvest, that was the beginning of a global harvest that God was going to reap through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After Pentecost came the Feast of Trumpets. We talked about how on the Feast of Trumpets, which is also referred to as Rosh Hashanah, which is the, the beginning of the new year, according to the Jewish calendar, that there's a, there's a ceremony that's performed called a tashlich ceremony, and what you do to begin the new year is kind of a starting afresh is you take breadcrumbs, you throw them into water, with flowing water, and you allow the current of the water to sweep them away, and those breadcrumbs represented our sins, and we talked about how God accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the removal of our sins from us. And then last week, last week we celebrated Yom Kippur. We considered how the Day of Atonement was the one day of the year where one designated person was allowed to pass through the curtain of the tabernacle and was allowed to enter into the holy presence of God. And we made the connection that at the moment of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, God himself tore that curtain of the tabernacle In two, from top to bottom. That's not a metaphor. That happened. God tore that curtain in two. And we made the connection that through the death of Christ, he had provided a way for all of us to enter into the presence of God by grace through faith. And now, five days after Yom Kippur, we come to our final feast of our Lenten journey. We come to the feast of Sukkot, a feast of booths sometimes referred to as the feast of ingathering or the feast of tabernacles for jewish people it was often simply referred to as the feast the feast this was a full week when pilgrims from all over came to jerusalem stayed in tents and had a party so I want for us to listen to the instructions. We, this is what we've done every week during Lent, is we've been looking at Leviticus, been preaching from Leviticus in chapter 23. That's the chapter in your Bible that explains the details of all of these feasts. And so Leviticus and chapter 23, and we'll be, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles actually gets the most verses, gets the longest treatment. We'll be reading verses 33 to 44. invite you to pray with me before I read. Holy Father, we we have been feasting throughout this Lenten season, feasting on your word. Uh, We do not live by bread alone. We do need bread to live, but we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. This is our food. This is our sustenance. And so I pray again that you would feed us, that, that we would feed well. On your word. I pray that you'd help it to make sense to us. Recognize that it was written in a very different culture and a different context, and yet it's meaningful and true and it's relevant to our lives today. So help us to understand what it means and how it's relevant, and help us then to apply it to our lives, to our church today. In Christ's name, Amen. Leviticus 23, verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses. Saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days, you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings each on its proper day besides the Lord's Sabbaths and besides your gifts and besides all your vow offerings and besides all your free offerings which you give to the Lord. On the 15th day, of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in the booths for seven days. All made of Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. All right, so it's a week-long worship party. And it is a feast during which time, during that week, all the people of Israel live in tents, dwell in booths. And the reason for that, the reason that this is like a camping party, staying in tents, is given, in case we're wondering, in verse 43, explicit. It says, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. All right? So God says, I want you to know, I don't want you to forget, I don't want there to be slippage from one generation to the next, but I want every single generation to really know that their ancestors spent 40 years in tents on the way to the promised land. All right? And of course they could know that just by hearing it, That's what we're doing right now. I'm saying it and you're hearing it. But experiencing it results in a different kind of knowing. Right? Hearing something's one thing, and you can know by hearing, but experiencing gives a different kind of knowledge. I remember I was in grade eight, and I remember one of our teachers thought that it would be a good idea for the students to know, to really know how disruptive and how life-changing teen pregnancy can be. And so instead of just lecturing us about the dangers of the type of behavior that can lead to teenage pregnancy, trying to keep this family friendly here, so keep it vague. Instead of doing that, instead of doing a lecture like that, here's what happened. We were partnered up, boys with girls, to form couples. She didn't ask us who wants to be with who. She just assigned couples. And then each couple was given a hard-boiled egg on Monday morning. That was our baby. And each couple was told they have to take care of their egg, and they have to keep keep it with them at all times. And if the couple was separated during the course of the day, they had to make sure that one of them, was keeping track of the egg. And if neither one of them was available to keep track of the egg, well, they had to find an egg sitter. And at night, they had to, they had to take the egg home and tuck it into the refrigerator. One of, one of the parents had to tuck it into the fridge and then bring it back the next day. My partner was Marnie. Her name was Marnie. And our baby egg was named Dominique. He was named after a I got to name him. He was named after a popular basketball player at the time. So does anyone here need to be told that my egg didn't make it to Friday? (laughs) Here's what happened. I was tossing little Dominique around the locker room, and he banged his head on the ceiling, and he cracked. Marnie was not happy. Our relationship did not survive the week. I am happy to say, though, that I learned my lesson and I did not make the same mistake with my real kids. Right? (laughs) Lesson learned. Now listen, the point of that exercise was to set up an artificial situation for one week. It was fake, right? It was an egg, but for one week, I pretended to be a parent so that I would know, so that I would really know experiential knowledge in a personal way, what it was like to have a child, sort of. And I guess it worked, because I still remember it 30 years later. I don't think I would have remembered it if she just gave us a lecture about that, but I do remember it because I experienced it. That is the thinking behind the Feast of Tabernacles. That is why the people of Israel stayed in tents for one week out of the year. They set up an artificial situation. None of them had to stay in tents. They had homes. They set up an artificial situation for one week. They all pretended to be living in tents. They all pretended to be on their way to the Promised Land from slavery so that they could know in an experiential and personal way, they could know what it feels like to be a sojourner traveling from slavery on your way to freedom. Traveling from bondage to the promised land. That's what they were supposed to feel and experience during the Feast of Tabernacles. All the ma- It was required, all males, and, and, and by implication with their families, within 20 miles of Jerusalem, were required to come and do this, to come and attend this festival. But it, it, it wasn't limited to that. People from all over came for this. Now, if you think about, I mean, we're talking about this now, although in the calendar year, this isn't, spring is not the right time to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. It happens in the fall. But the, the hard work is in the fields is finally done. Remember, everybody's a farmer back then. The hard work is finally done. The harvest is in. It is time now to gather, to thank God, to celebrate that the work is done, to to thank God for the way that he has provided for our needs, and and to even now, because the farmer's work is never done, begin to look forward to the season to come and to begin to pray for good weather uh, in the coming season. So it's a week-long worship service, but it has the feeling of a party, which I would argue worship services should have the feeling of a party. They're a celebration. Uh, there would have been during this worship, week-long worship service, there would have been feasting, eating baked goods and, and meat and fruit. There would have been singing. There would have been dancing. This was the most anticipated, the most joyful week of the year. Right? We talked about how Yom Kippur was the high holy day. It was the day. It was a big day, but it was a heavy day. Okay? This was the joyful time. This, this, In fact, this was referred to as the season of our gladness or the season of our joy. It was the most joyful week of the year. In the, in the prophetic book Zechariah, Zechariah uses the Feast of Tabernacles as a symbol of the glorious future of the people of God. He refers to this future golden age. It, it, it's, and he says it's going to be like a universal, global feast of tabernacles covering the earth. Right? The Israel believed that this week-long celebration of tabernacles was the closest thing to heaven on earth that you could experience in this life. The way it worked is that people would arrive from all over, and they would, when they would arrive, they would build these simple little shelters that they could stay in during the week. And so these booths would begin to pop up all over the city, pretty much anywhere you could find a spot, you build a little booth. And believe it or not, there were building codes for these shelters. The rabbinical code said that the walls had to be thin enough so that sunlight could get through. And the roofs had to have enough holes in the roof so that you could see the stars through your roof at night when you looked up. So these were intentionally flimsy in order to emphasize the the impermanence or the temporary nature of the sojourn. And the roofs had holes in them so that you could lay after a day of worship and fellowship and celebration and feasting, you could lay in your tabernacle, in your booth at night on your back and look up through the roof and see the stars. And you could be reminded of God's promise to Abraham when he promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars. And you could tell yourself, do you know what? I'm one of them one of those stars represents me, a child of Abraham, a member of God's family through the covenant. That applies to you and I as well. So living in those tents, it became a metaphor, not just just a metaphor of of the journey from Egypt to the promised land, but living in those tents for that week became a metaphor for all of life. Right? This body is a temporary tent, right? And I, and I journey in it, I carry it around with me and I journey in it, but inevitably, sooner or later, this tent is gonna wear out along the way. It's not permanent. This life is a temporary journey towards a more permanent destination, right? That was the message of the Feast of Tabernacles. This life is a temporary journey And the journey is heading towards a more permanent destination. We'll come back to that at the end of the sermon. For for right now, we need to talk about sacrifices. We've done that every week now for six weeks. We need to talk about sacrifices one more time. I know the altar is gone now because he is risen. Uh, But once again, we need to imagine. And now we can because we've had that wonderful uh, image now that we've all seen Uh, what the the altar was like so we need to imagine that we're gathered around the altar again we've sacrificed an awful lot of animals during the previous six feasts and the feast of tabernacle requires by far the largest number of sacrifices the list of what we need to sacrifice is given in the book of Numbers chapter 29 and it's a long list I'm not going to read it all But I'll just read part of it so you get the idea. It says, On the first day, you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thirteen bulls from the herd, two rams, fourteen male lambs a year old without blemish, And their grain offering, of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the 13 bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and a tenth for each of the 14 lambs. We also are going to need one male goat for a sin offering, and that's in addition to the regular daily burnt offerings and grain offerings and drink offerings, okay? That's day one. On the second day, 12 bulls from the herd, two rams, 14 lambs, grain offerings, etc. On the third day, 11 bulls, 2 rams, 14 lambs. You get the idea. Every day, it's one less bull and all, all the rest of the offerings stay the same. And so if you total it up for the week, here's what we need to offer this week. 70 bulls, 14 rams, 98 lambs, 7 goats. And that's in addition to the daily offerings that would have been offered every day, year round. That is an awful lot of bloodshed for a feast that's about tents. But more important for our purposes, besides all the animal sacrifices, we need to talk about a unique ritual that was practiced every day during the Feast of Tabernacles, at the heart of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a daily rite that took place every day. Each morning, imagine, imagine, we're, imagine you're here, you came with your family, you set up your booth. This is a, this is a week-long worship party, fellowship. You're getting reacquainted with, with dear ones that you haven't seen in a while. It's the feeling of a party. Don't picture that we're, like the last six weeks we've been talking about the tabernacle with the altar and then the tent, but imagine that we're further down the road in the history and that the temple, Solomon's temple, has been built, okay? So now there's a temple, and there's a temple complex, right? So imagine that we gather there every day, and when you gather, here's what you need to bring with you. Everybody needs this, okay? You need to bring a piece of citrus fruit. It's a citrone, which is like a lemon, kind of a flat, elongated lemon. So you've got to bring that, everybody, and then you put that uh, in your left hand. You're holding your lemon in your left hand. That lemon is just a physical, visual reminder of the blessings of the harvest. God has provided this fruit for us. Let's celebrate and thank God. Okay, that's what the, the citrone is for. In your right hand, you need three branches. Okay, you need to bring a palm, a willow, and a myrtle branch. Okay, and each of those branches represents the three stages of the journey uh, from slavery to the promised land. The palm represents being brought out of slavery in Egypt. The willow represents the 40 years uh, in in the desert on the way. And the myrtle represents uh, entering into the promised land. Okay, so you've got your citron in in your left hand, you've got your branches in your right hand, you're ready to go. Okay, and we all gather at the temple and the priest then stands before us and the priest holds up a solid gold pitcher. And then the priest steps down and marches right through the crowd. We kind of part the way and let the priest walk right through us. And then we, we close in and we follow the priest. As a, as a crowd, we follow the priest and he goes to the pool of Siloam. And as we go, we're chanting psalms, we're worshiping, we're singing, kids are dancing around, we're waving our branches... And we're following to the pool of Siloam. The priest then takes the golden pitcher, dips it in the pool of Siloam. And then we all shout out with a loud unified voice, just like our kids did when they said he is risen indeed. We shout out after he dips the water, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And of course the you, the pronoun you there is us. Right, they're quoting Isaiah twelve 3. We're saying with joy we... We'll, dwell, we'll, we'll, we'll draw water from the wells of salvation. And then, after that's done, we all march back to the temple. We enter through what's known as the water gate, uh, and, and the, the, all the long trumpets are being blasted, and we're singing psalms. The priest then gets back to the altar, circles it once, ascends the platform, takes the pitcher, and pours the water onto the altar. That ritual was kind of the centerpiece of the Feast of Tabernacles every day. It happened every day during the week. Okay. Now all along during this series, we've been considering the significance of each feast for ancient Israel. And then we've been seeing how that feast pointed forward to the life and ministry of Jesus. And in the case of this particular feast, we have the words of Jesus himself as Jesus drew the line of connection for us. That happens in the book of John, and chapter 7. We're told that Jesus, the Feast of Tabernacles is happening, and Jesus attends. He goes to the worship party. He, he doesn't show up on day one, but he shows up, we're told, midweek, about halfway through. And he shows up, and everybody's there, right? And it's a party, and we're told that he begins to teach in the temple courts. Remember, the temple courts is a huge complex, Loads of people around, and he begins to teach and begins to draw a crowd. And some people listen, and they're amazed at what he's saying, and they believe what he's saying. And some people listen, and they hate what he's saying, and they're offended by what he's saying, and they want to kill him. And some people are just, they listen, and they're just plain confused, and they don't don't know what he's talking about. They don't know why he's saying what he's saying. Okay, that goes on for a few days, because he came midweek, and then we finally come to the last and greatest day of the festival. That's what it says in John 7, the final day, the last day of the festival had come. Okay, and on this last day, uh, the, the, the daily ritual, the water thing happens again, The priest takes the the, the golden pitcher and he walks to the pool of Siloam. He fills the golden pitcher. Uh, We say the thing we're supposed to say about drawing water from the wells of salvation. And then he comes back to the temple. We're all waving our branches and chanting psalms. This time when he gets to the altar, he circles the altar not one time, but seven times. And as he's circling, you can just imagine, right, the anticipation is growing, The excitement, the joy, the jubilation is growing. He he, he comes around the sixth time, and he's joined by another priest. This priest also has a golden pitcher, but this pitcher is full of wine, not water, wine. And then they both go up the ramp to the altar together. Two priests, two pitchers, one water, one wine. Then there's a pause and the priests raise their pitchers. And the crowd goes wild. It was considered the height of joy for an Israelite to be present and to see the water and the wine being poured onto the altar on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? That would be like the pinnacle of your life. So imagine this scene. And it's the last day of the great Feast of Tabernacles. And as I mentioned, sometimes that feast was referred to as the Feast of Ingathering. It's called that both because it was a harvest feast and we, they, had, they had gathered in the harvest, but it was also because the Israelites were anticipating a day when there would be a global ingathering of people and nations into the household of God. So it's, it's this moment of just spiritual anticipation and ecstasy, it's, 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 a, it's a festival in which water features prominently. And so you can imagine the significance when Jesus stands up and cries out in a loud voice, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, Scripture has says, river, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So what did he mean when he said that on the last day of the great feast? What does it mean to thirst? Do you thirst? Isn't we all thirst? So what, what, what do we thirst for? Well, well, like God so often does, he's using the physical experience of thirsting as a metaphor, right? A metaphor for spiritual thirsting. Everyone who has ever lived has thirsted physically. We are made to need Water. Water is not optional. You don't, you don't have to go very long without water to begin to be reminded of how dependent on water you are. We continually need water in order to survive. Lack of clean water is one of the leading causes of death, even in our modern world today, it is. And so here is Jesus saying, look, in the same way, in the same way that you have physical thirst, and if your physical thirst isn't satisfied, You die so too you have spiritual thirst. And your spiritual thirst needs to be satisfied or you're going to die. So if anyone here is experiencing spiritual thirst, come to me and drink. I, and I alone, can satisfy that deep spiritual thirst that you have carried around with you since your birth. That, That desire for belonging, that quest for meaning and purpose, and real peace that everybody feels that's not a that's not a cultural thing that's not a thing that used to be true of people but not anymore that's universal we all feel that a longing to know our creator a longing to worship our creator this is spiritual thirst and it is deeply and eternally satisfied only in Jesus so how does he how does he satisfy that thirst well it was it was foreshadowed on the last day of the great feast. Two priests, two golden pitchers, pouring out water and wine onto the altar. I mean, the foreshadowing really couldn't be any more explicit, could it? I mean, once again, here we find ourselves at the altar, and once again, the altar is pointing us to Jesus. I mean, they would have had no way of knowing it at the time, but very shortly... After this happened on the great day of the feast, the Son of God was going to be sacrificed on the altar of the Lord for the sins of His people, and His side was going to be pierced, and from His side would flow water and blood. His blood shed for us is what quenches our spiritual thirst. Our desires for belonging and meaning and purpose and peace that we all have are satisfied and quenched in Christ. Our broken relationship with our Creator is restored because of what Christ has done for us. All right, now we come back to the central metaphor of the Feast of Tabernacles. The tent itself... Was a metaphor for impermanence, right? We are we are sojourners. We're we're traveling. We're on a journey. We're 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 we're, we're in an impermanent place in impermanent structures. But we're making our way towards a place that is permanent. We're on a journey from slavery to the promised land, right? I I know it's a bleak thing to talk about on Resurrection Sunday, but according to the Bible, all humans were slaves to sin. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our transgressions and sins, without God and without hope in the world. And yet in Christ, we've been set free from those chains. We've been given the gift of eternal life. And that gift starts now in this life, but ultimately, we inherit the fullness of that gift in the life to come. Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. He had a fully human body. It was a finite Body. It was subject to hunger and thirst and sickness and death and pain. He laid down that life for our sake. He was crucified and died and laid in the grave. But on Sunday morning, he rose again from the dead. And he rose with a resurrection body that is not finite and will not get old and will not get sick and will not die ever again. And because that is true, you and I now have the hope of eternal life and the promise of resurrection after death, we too shall be raised. And so I want to close our time this morning by reading the tail end of a letter. We'll read somebody else's mail. Uh, Sometimes you read Paul's letters, and he's he's obviously writing to a large group. He's obviously expecting that his words are going to be read out to a large group. But when you read the end of his last letter, the final letter that he wrote from prison in his old age, to his young protege, Timothy. It, it, whenever I read that, it just feels more private and more personal than some of his other ones. And so at the, end of that, at the end of his last letter, he writes, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That phrase, the, the time of my departure, it's, it's a translation of one word, one Greek word, one verb, uh, the word is analusis, and it literally means to take down a tent. To take down a tent and to roll it up, pack it up, and put it away, analusis. Right? It's like after a journey, and you've got to put the tent away, you fold it up, you, you take the Take the poles down, fold it up, put it away. Analusis. That's the word he uses for the end of his life. What he's saying there is that this tent that is my body, it was temporary. And it has served its purposes, and now it is time for me to fold it up and put it away. But then, he goes on to say, henceforth, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. See, these tabernacles, these tents that you and I walk around with, they're temporary, right? We're all wearing our tent right now, and we like it, and it's good, and we're thankful for it, but it's temporary. It's gonna wear out, This is the tent that we stay in on our journey from slavery to the promised land. During the Feast of Tabernacles, we stay here. And one day, we're going to pack it up and put it away. It's going to happen. It's not a permanent tent that you dwell in. Some of us are much more acutely aware of that right now than others, but it's true for all of us, young and old. One day, it will come time to fold up this tent and to put it away. But death doesn't get the final word because our Lord and Savior went to war with death and he won the fight and he didn't stay dead but he rose again from the dead and he rose again from the dead with a resurrection body. A resurrection body is different than a regular body. He is risen. He's risen, and because He's risen, we will rise. That's the message of Easter. That's the message of the empty tomb. And that's ultimately the message that all of those feasts and sacrifices were pointing forward to. That Jesus was going to lay down His life on the altar for our lives, but He was going to rise again from the dead. So that we too could have the promise and the knowledge that we will one day rise again with him. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for these tents that we live in right now, these bodies. We're created in your image, male and female, you created us. And it is very good. This world is good. Humanity is very good, created in your image. Life is a blessing. It's full of joy and beauty. And yet we recognize that these bodies, these tents, they're not permanent. They're not going to last forever. They're going to get old. Start to fall apart and decay, decay. And there will come a time for each one of us and it's time to pack up the tent and fold it and put it away. And Lord, if that was the end of the story, then that would be a tragedy. But it is not the end of the story. Because you have risen. You took on a resurrection body, a glorious body that will not get old, that will not get sick, that will not die again. And you promise that we too are united with you by faith in your death and in your resurrection. And so death is not the period at the end of our life. But it's just a time of transition. And that we too will rise again with bodies that are imperishable. We thank you that that is the message of Easter. That's the promise that you've given us. We thank you that that is the consistent message of these feasts that Israel celebrated so long ago and in some cases continues to celebrate that ultimately they all po- pointed forward to you to your life, your death your love and your ministry we pray these things in your